You've always had what it takes to make it happen. And we know the right tools can make it easier. At Strayer University, we're always thinking about new ways to set you up for success. That's why we give you a brand new laptop when you enroll in a bachelor's program. So you can start off on the right foot and keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Eligibility rules, restrictions, and exclusions apply. Connect with us for details. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by Chef. Hello and welcome to this episode of Physical Attraction, where we are continuing our short series on short-circuiting the meaning of life. Remember, this is a sort of out-there philosophical-type episode that we're doing, so it's very unlike our usual content, but nevertheless, I still hope you enjoy it. In the last episode, I mentioned that there were a couple of things that had got me thinking about this whole idea of short-circuiting the meaning of life, and one of them is the superintelligent AI speculations that come from people like Bostrom and so on, who believe that technology is developing so quickly that we will soon be engulfed by a singularity. And the consequences of that are then what they're trying to ponder philosophically. But there was another thing that I read that brought this whole idea and line of thought back to the front of mind, which was Michael Pollan's new book, which is called How to Change Your Mind. This is essentially a book about psychedelic drugs, LSD, psilocybin, and so on. Now, I should state, obviously, that I've never had any of these drugs. These days, even drinking alcohol makes me feel pretty woozy. But I don't know if that will be true for everyone who's listening. I don't really want to read too much into any of the specific claims that get made in the book. Like all books of its kind, it's inevitably going to be a little bit biased simply because of how you have to write and compose these things. If you go around interviewing people who are looking into whether psychedelic drugs can be used to treat mental illnesses or improve people's lives in other ways, don't be surprised if they tend to be people who are pretty keen on the idea that they can, and the stories that you'll hear will obviously follow accordingly. And then, of course, you get into all of the incentives that the writer has to come up with some radical new conclusion when they're writing their book, and therefore the incentive structure is simply for them to emphasise the effects that these drugs can have as a treatment. So none of this is, is medical advice yet. And you will, of course, only get a subset of those experiences reported, although the book will probably leave you thinking, as it's designed to, that it would be a good area for genuine clinical trials to carry on in the future. Nevertheless, there are several points in the book where they describe people being treated for depression. In one case, you have a group of people with terminal illnesses who are struggling acutely with the problem that we all try to avoid thinking about too much, with the notion of their own deaths. And in many cases, these people take the psychedelic drugs that they are prescribed with, I should say, the appropriate set and setting in place. So typically they'll have a guide who comes along with them and ensures that the environment is controlled so that there's not too many negative influences on what happens to them. And they report profound impacts happening afterwards. The subjective experience that they have, which is generally very difficult for many of them to describe, but often deeply spiritually profound, shifts their perspective afterwards in some way as if a switch has been flipped. And this persists for a long time after the direct influence of the drug is over. It's almost like a, a permanent rewiring of the circuitry of people's brains. Now, in the positive cases that are reported in this book, they have new ideas, new insights, a new perspective, and often a new sense of meaning and purpose in their lives. 
Sometimes they no longer worry about death because they have a sense of being connected to something much larger and more important than themselves. They have experienced this sense of overwhelming awe or ego dissolution or whatever you want to call it. And the author, Michael Pollan, goes through several of these experiences and experiences some things not unlike this himself. Now, I don't really want to get into any of the details or practicalities or problems or uh, advantages of tripping on acid or whatever we're really talking about here. And this is obviously not an endorsement of that approach either, simply because clearly other people have different reactions which depend a great deal on the set and setting and their own circumstances in a way that seems to be very hard to predict. And I think that's probably a reason why, even though people do report these positive effects, there is a limit to how likely any of this stuff is to be used in clinical trials because the possibility of adverse events is also quite high. Personally, I don't think I would consider doing anything like this because I'm convinced that my own subconscious or unconscious mind probably wants to eat me, and if I dissolve my ego, it probably will. So abstract all of the practicalities and the specifics of existing hallucinogens away. And instead, it's just the sort of central idea here that is interesting and that relates to what we talked about in the last episode. Imagine that there was a pill that you could take, which would make you feel as if your life had meaning. That assuaged whatever philosophical doubts or existential angst you might feel in one fell swoop. Would you take it? This is what I mean by short-circuiting the meaning of life. And it sort of comes in one of two categories here. If you believe in the sort of vague notion that the meaning of life is simply to try and be happy, is it valid to just tell the AI, tell the computer, to make sure that your consciousness achieves that? Maybe for you the meaning of life is to produce great artworks or great science, regardless of whether you're subjectively happy doing so, because you will get different sensations of influence or achievement. Maybe you want to make others happy, contribute to something bigger than yourself, etc, etc. Whatever it is, we can theorise different ways that you can either convince yourself that that's what's going on, or simply remove the desire to do these things in the first place. And in the sense, you have short-circuited the meaning of life by simply automatically achieving all of your goals, or deluding yourself into thinking that you have, or changing your psychology so that you no longer mind that you haven't. Of course, the other point of view is imagining that we have this pill that can simply rid us of all this existential angst. You're no longer worried about what the meaning or purpose of your life is. You're no longer concerned with the fact that it's finite and that you will die, and after that, if you're of my kind of philosophical inclination at least, you will simply cease to be. Maybe this is because you now believe that you've had some very deep and meaningful spiritual experience that makes everything else valid, or that makes the whole absurdity of existence make sense to you, or puts it into a cosmic perspective that causes all of these concerns to melt away. Maybe in a sense you do believe that because you're connected to something, uh, you're, you're at peace with the fact that the natural order of things is for you to die and to return to the great other, um, which is some of the things that people talked about in Pollan's book as something that they come to terms with after these experiences. And whatever dissatisfaction you might have with your lot is gone because you're now aware of this great truth that goes beyond it all. And you see this in people who have uh, religious conversions, sometimes expressing similar sentiments. So here again, you've, through the means of this pill, short-circuited the meaning of life, or perhaps even the process of worrying and wondering about it, because you have it all sussed out, or at least to your own spiritual satisfaction. 
Indeed, in other worlds of the Bostrom fantasy with simulated minds and so on, you can dream of a combination of these things, right? It's a little brave new world, but you can of course imagine that minds would be engineered in such a way that they are immensely happy with whatever it is that it's necessary for them to do, and that they derive a great degree of satisfaction from simply completing the task that they were made for. In a sense, you could also argue when people describe the flow state, not quite happiness, but of fulfilling a function, completing a task, achieving a goal, feeling like they're doing the thing that they were put on the earth to do. That's another manifestation of this. So in this case, you'd be changing your mind so that the meaning of life is simply whatever you're doing. It's the ultimate adaptation to your circumstances. Similarly, of course, if you assume that you would have this level of knowledge of the mind and the ability to influence it through technology, through drugs, whatever it is, then you could presumably choose not to actually think about these things, or even be aware of the things that would cause you distress. One of the most remarkable things about the subjective spiritual experience that people report after taking psychedelics in these cases is that they believe that it is significant even though they know, intellectually, that they have taken a drug to induce it. I know because I've asked this question to people who've had some of these experiences, and they generally then say... Uh, that you need to abandon a reductionist and materialist notion that every experience is just the result of chemicals floating around in your brain. The rationalisation that people come up with after the fact is something latent that is being unlocked or revealed. In fact, this is one of the things that is quite interesting about Pollen's own experience with psychedelics. In fact, this is one of the things that is quite interesting about Pollen's own experience with psychedelics. He goes in with scepticism, having studied this a lot in advance, he has his experiences, despite the fact that he still obviously attributes them mechanistically to the influence of the drugs on his brain and the set and setting of the psychological experience that he's undergone, the knowledge that this was induced by a drug doesn't seem to remove any of its philosophical or emotional importance to him, and it doesn't make it any easier to dismiss. Even as he interprets this mystical experience as his brain's way of coping with, and after the fact rationalising, something that physically occurs beyond its usual chemical material limits or boundaries, basically, he still feels that it has meaning. How's that for a sort of double think? It's a little like the process of confabulation that people talk about, where if you forget something, or if there's part of an explanation that you don't have, you will invent a story, or you will invent different details uh, in the process of trying to remember it, that will allow your brain to fill in the sort of embarrassing gap that that seems to exist, uh, to explain away the thing that it can't retrieve. So the AI, the computer simulation idea, and the psychedelic drugs share this similar general theme. We imagine a way to alter our own consciousness. In both cases, by the way, I've chosen a type of technology as the medium here, although Pollen obviously points out that the way these experiences are often interpreted is as religious, or at least spiritual in nature, and that the use of drugs in religious ceremonies by a great number of peoples has occurred for many, many centuries. Clearly, in taking this drug, he interprets it by saying you're accessing a subjective experience that is available to human consciousness in some way. And perhaps people access similar, albeit maybe not quite as intense, rushes of chemicals in their brains through religious practice, meditation, listening to an awesome record, falling in love, whatever it may be. And this is the point, really, isn't it? Because we know that these things are, in fact, intrinsic to us in the sense that The capacity to have this kind of experience is a part of us, is a part of you. You would have it if you were put in this situation. You don't have to believe in doors of perception that are mystically opening to know that. Even if you have a materialist interpretation of reality, then you can very happily say that this sort of thing is something that you could feel. 
Anyone who's ever felt the floor fall out from under them while listening to a beautiful piece of music, while their friend who could be listening to the same song doesn't get it to the same extent, will know that. Anyone who has ever felt their field of perception narrow when they see a particular person who seems to make the world somehow brighter when they're around, but who registers to everyone else as just another person, will know what I'm talking about. We know that the ability to experience these things is intrinsic to us, and you can reduce it to chemistry that makes your pupils dilate and your brain fire off some neurons all you want, but somehow, in the moment subjectively to us, that doesn't ever seem to make it less worthwhile, does it? So again, we come back to the idea of short-circuiting the meaning of life, and whether there's something wrong with artificially manipulating ourselves to make these things possible. And if so, what is wrong about it? These fantasies are everywhere. And it does seem inevitable that if we manage to escape from the 21st century relatively unscathed, if our levels of technological development do not saturate, as they appear to be doing, at some point long before this is possible, then part of the next stage is going to be to look to alter, to influence, and to manipulate ourselves. Even in a much more minor way than this uh, extreme version that I'm talking about, there are all of these things now that promise to allow you to live a longer, smarter, happier, healthier life. Uh, Lifestyle practices, self-help books... uh, Fitbit watches, whatever it may be, that's what it's all about, isn't it? And would it not be easier to do so by attacking the problem, the flaw of us at the root? This is, of course, something that has already happened to an extent. So I realise that there is a great deal of vagueness surrounding this question, and I think a lot of it comes down to the fundamental dissatisfaction you get when you try to articulate, okay, what is the meaning of life? If we're short-circuiting the meaning of life, what am I talking about when I say that? And basically, it's in that a lot of the common answers that we might have to that question are always going to be profoundly unsatisfying to us if we dig into them deeply enough. And that is simply a way of exposing that fact. If you ever had a conversation with a child of maybe five, six, seven whatever age it is where they start saying why over and over again. It's always interesting to talk to people because you will see that that's driven by an intrinsic curiosity, but also a desire that there should be an explanation for everything that there is. And many of the things that we take for granted, the concepts that surround us in the world, if you keep asking that question, why, 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 you will eventually get to something that you find unsatisfying or something that is axiomatic that you've always assumed. And when it comes to why you have the axioms that you've assumed and the things that you have implicitly said must be the case so that you can uh, go on with your day and start constructing more complicated, higher-order things, you're inevitably going to have an issue answering that question. And that's why whenever you play the why game with a little kid, you know, you'll eventually just say because I say so, or because that's the way that it is, because there's only so far that that recursion can take you. And I think the same is true of the meaning of life. You know, if people say, what should you do in any given circumstance? And you continue to say why, 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 why to their explanation for what they think the meaning of life is. Um, Eventually you'll come down to something like, well, that's all there is, or that's the way things are, without 
any sort of fundamental underlying explanation. I mean, this is the thing that, you know, you, you if you read the kind of writings of uh, religious philosophers going back to the Middle Ages, even, they're still worried about this infinite recursion and how to end it. And indeed, people have uh, at the time argued that this was evidence for the existence of God, because you need something uh, which is self-explanatory so that you don't have to um, endlessly recur uh, in this questioning of why, 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 why. But when it comes down to the answers that we would give when we try and answer the meaning of life, I think people will find a lot of them to be unsatisfying if you think about them in too much depth. And I think when one gives an answer, one knows that that will have to be unsatisfying. And I think this is just a way of exposing the fact. Having mentioned them already in that tangent, I do wonder what the ancient philosophers would have made of this idea. I remember reading Marcus Aurelius' Meditations a lot in my college library, partly because I really like the Roman history angle, of course, and partly by the notion of the romanticised character of Marcus Aurelius himself, which a lot of people have got interested in in recent years. Because the story is that he writes the Meditations essentially as a diary to himself, to try and persuade himself to get through the day and go about his duties as emperor, which were not actually the duties that he probably wanted. Uh, They involved fighting a bunch of German raiders on the frozen Danube in a tent and commanding armies into battle, rather than relaxing in Rome with a nice library and uh, reading his favourite philosophers and composing treaties on the proper way to act, which is probably what he wanted to be doing. But instead he writes the meditations to try and persuade himself every day to do this thing that he thinks is his duty, that he finds unpleasant. And I think it's the way that it's written in that context that makes it so profoundly relatable. Here's one of my favourite bits, which I think also illustrates the stoic response to all of this rather nicely. He wrote, quote, At dawn of day, when you dislike being called, have this thought ready. I am called to do man's labour. Why then do I make a difficulty if I am going out to do what I was born to do and what I was brought into the world for? Is it for this that I am fashioned, to lie in bedclothes and keep myself warm? But this is more pleasant. Were you born then to please yourself, in fact, for feeling, not for action? Can't you see the plants, the birds, the ants, the spiders, the bees, each doing their own work, helping for their part to adjust a world? And then you refuse to do a man's office and don't make haste to do what is according to your own nature. But a man needs rest as well. I agree, he does. Yet nature assigns limits to rest, as well as to eating and drinking, and you nevertheless go beyond her limits. Beyond what is sufficient. In your actions only, this is no longer so. There you keep inside what is in your power. The explanation is that you do not love your own self, else surely you would love both your nature and her purpose. But other people who love their own crafts wear themselves out in labours upon them, unwashed and unfed while you hold your own nature in less honour than the smith his metalwork, the dancer his art, the miser his coin, the lover of vainglory his fame. Yet they, when the passion is on them, refuse either to eat or sleep sooner than to refuse to advance the objects they care about. Whereas you imagine acts of fellowship to bring a smaller return and to be deserving of less pains. End quote. I mean, you can see why I love this passage, because on one level, it's quite a nice summation of Stoic philosophy and the Stoic approach to problems, which is when you encounter something, the main issue is your reaction to it and your emotions in it, and you should instead be more willing to go with the flow of nature. 
But also on a way more relatable level, it is a Roman emperor from 2,000 years ago, in his 50s, trying to persuade himself to get out of bed in the morning. If this, as a concept, doesn't give you something of a twinkle of the universal human solidarity we're talking about here, I don't know what will. The Stoic idea, then, is to attain some profound knowledge or understanding, to think clearly, and to live in accordance with nature. And you free yourself from the suffering of the earth by attaining mastery of your own feelings primarily. It is almost an ultimate adaptation to circumstances. The Stoics almost take a kind of perverse pleasure in being able to cast aside these feelings and troubles and simply to endure whatever happens to them and to live in accordance with nature. It's all bound up in ideas like not letting your reaction to negative things, whether they're external in the form of your circumstances or internal in the form of your feelings, dominate you. Only by doing that can you stoically accept reality as it is and perform your duties or whatever it is you think is virtuous to do. Now, all of that is great and worthy, Marcus, but what of the idea that you can use some technological trick to manipulate or fool yourself into getting rid of those negative emotions, or making it easier to change your reaction to situations? What about the rejection of the idea that there is anything particularly worthwhile about living in accordance with nature, with events? What if you're not thinking that there's any sort of divine will that you have to go along with, that you have to agree with, that you must consent to and accept. The idea that is pretty relentless in the modern world is that our aim should be to improve on nature, actually, rather than accept any of the things that happen as a result of it. Particularly when you look at the techno-utopians and the singularity people, they're always talking about conquering even death and having people live forever, either through extreme biological longevity or uploading their brains to the cloud. What about the rejection that whatever dignity might come from stoically accepting your fate is actually worth anything? Would it matter, then, that you didn't attain true enlightenment or self-control or ability to live in accordance with nature, but in some sense instead lived in an illusion of nature? Now, I imagine that Marcus and others would immediately reject the ideas that I'm presenting here as cheating, as we all feel that we must, because the ultimate purpose is to adapt yourself to nature and live in accordance with it. But when you do that, the alternative is to condone suffering out of a sense that in some way what is real is more important to preserve, even as cold materialists will tell you there's no greater purpose behind it. Stoicism, in other words, makes a lot of sense as a philosophy when you're dealing with problems that you know you have no solution to. But what? technology is offering in this siren song that people are thinking about is the idea that you might have a solution to those problems that is more permanent. And if that's so, why wouldn't you end up short-circuiting the meaning of life? And maybe you can imagine, as dystopian novels like Brave New World sort of have done, that if we ever did find ways to successfully drug ourselves out of our miseries or retreat into simulated paradises, that some people would reject it. And In some ways, they'd reject it out of a kind of idea that you should prefer to suffer certain things in reality rather than simply not know about them. But then when you try and ask why, I think it falls into that category of beliefs that we say we hold, but which we don't examine nearly enough in terms of their detail or consequences. 
You're saying that we're all here by coincidence, there's no real meaning to it all, that in many ways the question is one without significance or any sort of answer, because that would rely on some external authority to impose the answer and the purpose, and that this doesn't exist and probably wouldn't be satisfactory to you anyway if it did. Well, that's fine, you can take that approach. But if you want to argue that there is no meaning, then you can rid yourself of the question or concern about it, because it's pointless. You can change yourself into someone who believes that there is a meaning and that you're quite happily going about fulfilling it. Both of those things, objectively, would only have the difference that you'd be deluded in some way, or simply unconcerned with a question that has no answer. Why is that a bad thing? Let's say, for example, that you're madly infatuated, or delusional. These things are often have some overlap, as veterans will tell you. In the midst of that wild glow, someone more cynical might try and burst your bubble by telling you that what you're feeling, what you're experiencing, is in some way not real or not going to last. Okay, in the midst of heartbreak or a forced and brutal confrontation with reality beyond the delusion, you will bitterly reflect on those words and how true they were. So what's the issue here? Simply that you couldn't sustain the delusion for long enough? What makes it a delusion is just a perspective that you've changed over time. And then, of course, you get into all this rubbish about what is objectively real and what is subjectively real, and we'll be here all day. How much of our knee-jerk philosophical rejection of things that aren't real is simply our rejection of a source of happiness that we don't suspect we can sustain? When we look at the people who are taking Soma in the brave new world, is the reason we feel bad for them because we think that their bubbles will burst eventually? The idea behind that is that you would uh, adopt drugs, social and genetic conditioning, societal norms and so on that are supposedly designed to make everyone happy and contented with their lot in life. In the end, characters reject this utopia because it's artificial and they go and live with savages who have to suffer like modern humans do. But is it that they saw through the delusion and the illusion of utopia that their society had created? Or was it just that the illusion wasn't good enough, wasn't convincing enough? That it impinged too much on people's individuality or freedom or the way they wanted to feel? I mean, let's say it can be arbitrarily good, recursively good. All of the issues and flaws are addressed. I already know people for whom very simple posings of this idea that don't have any of those caveats. Infinite happiness pill? Why wouldn't you take it? You'd be loving it are enough. So who is going to turn down arbitrarily good salvation? Why is it more valid if we obtain our happiness or our meaning through some other process? One thing is for sure, you certainly wouldn't need to argue and agonise over these questions of validity after you had taken the magic pill that we're hypothesising about here, because then all of these questions would simply melt away. Are we saying that it's necessary to suffer in order to somehow earn this meaning? That in fact it's necessary for there to be a huge chance that you never find that satisfaction at all? Why should that be the case? We didn't ask to be born, nor did we ask to exist in a universe devoid of meaning. Nor did we ask to have brains complicated enough to come up with a concept of a meaning to the universe that we would have to worry about, beyond simply appreciating it for what it is and existing. In this framing, then, we are sad and broken creatures with a psychological and existential flaw, a need that is absolutely impossible to satisfy. This relentless, endless need, which can only be sated for a little while at a time, 
drives us to distraction and often to destruction of ourselves, of others, of the environment. Why else do so many of us pursue endless wealth, endless power, endless attainment, endless advancement, and remain unsatisfied? Or if there are those of us who are generally contented and satisfied, why is it wrong for the rest of us to want to aspire and join their ranks? Whether it's all of us or some of us who are broken, we are broken. This is a quote from Wikipedia that I quite like about one of the anti-natalist philosophers, Peter Wessel Zapf, with apologies if I've pronounced the name wrong. Zapf viewed humans as a biological paradox. According to him, consciousness has become over-evolved in humans, thereby making us incapable of functioning normally like other animals. Cognition gives us more than we can carry. Our frailness and insignificance in the cosmos are visible to us. We want to live, and yet because of how we have evolved, we are the only species whose members are conscious that we are destined to die. We are able to analyse the past and the future, both our situation and that of others, as well as to imagine the suffering of billions of people and other living beings, and to try and feel some level of compassion for their suffering. We yearn for both justice and meaning in a world that intrinsically lacks both. This ensures that the lives of conscious individuals are inevitably tragic. We have desires, spiritual needs, which reality is unable to satisfy, and our species still exists only because we limit our awareness of what reality actually entails. Human existence, therefore, amounts to a tangled network of defence mechanisms, which can be observed, both individually and socially, in our everyday patterns of behaviour. According to Zapf, Humanity should cease this self-deception, and the natural consequence would be its extinction by abstaining from procreation. Yeah, I had that as my dating app bio for a while. Um, The point here is to say that none of us have a proper grasp on reality. If you did, you'd go insane. Our perspectives are eternally limited, skewed, biased balls of string and sellotape and contradictions and emotional scaffolding all sticking together into something that allows you to maintain something like your sanity. A house of cards hoping that no one comes along too much to poke at its foundations. We mostly just muddle along with our self-defence mechanisms against our terrible ignorance and our terrible knowledge and sort of hope for the best. And when Zapf is kind of appealing to this evolutionary point here, the whole idea is, well, there's no intrinsic reason that the human psychology should be something that should be stable or uh, capable of dealing with reality. Um, It's simply that we've evolved uh, bigger and bigger brains and more and more complex cognition as an evolutionary niche that allows us to outwit our predators. Um, It's favoured for because it allows you to survive. But just because it allows you to survive, it doesn't mean it allows you to survive and be happy. It doesn't mean it allows you to survive and do what you want. In this sense, evolution itself is another example of a misaligned optimizer. It is optimising for survival, but (laughs) there's no guarantee that you won't end up with a dismal realisation at the end of evolution, where... Yes, humans have done so much, we've dominated and subjugated so many other species and so much of the planet's surface, and we continue to adapt and attempt to conquer 
death and the limits to our own species and the environmental boundaries that limit our population as well. In, in that sense, our evolutionary niche is incredibly successful because we're sustaining a population of 9 billion and the uh, planetary ecosystem is dominated by biomass that's either us or that we're cultivating as our life support system to keep us alive. But just because we have optimised for the number of humans along the planet or the likelihood of uh, humans to survive, at least in the short term, doesn't mean at all that the evolution is in any way ideal and is going to lead to psychological well-being. Indeed, in some ways, there may be a contradiction between those things, because if you were always psychologically satisfied, you might not seek to uh, reproduce or continue to do the things that allow you to uh, dominate and expand and keep the species going. You know, if, if a virus was happy, it probably wouldn't invade any cells either. But when you have this framing, then, that the only way to exist in a, an absurd universe, one that lacks meaning, is to cobble together all of these different illusions that make life possible, then the argument becomes, what's one more illusion? Why is it okay to allow yourself to believe certain things, not to question others, and to avoid thinking too hard about any of it or the contradictions inherent in it, or to create a meaning for yourself to determine that, whether it's a Sisyphean meaning where you're trying to roll a rock uphill, or social meaning where you're trying to do good for others. Why is it okay to do any of those things? But it's not okay to take it one step further and go live in fantasy land or use some new tool to help you in that. The boundaries here are very blurred. Are we really going to ultimately sacrifice what we claim to want, a world that is lacking in suffering, for some perverse notion of naturalness? Why would we do that when we've already subjugated and dominated and removed so much else that we considered to be bad? So, in short-circuiting the meaning of life, then, if even the very question of, oh, what's the meaning of life and the existential angst that goes along with it is in essence just this unanswerable flaw in our psyche, just this impossible riddle, just this defect in evolution like the fact that we can end up with back pain or arthritis or dementia. What perverse logic would insist that you keep this in place if you could cure it? It's hardly our fault that we're mortal and contemplating death and the end to everything can cause us distress. We've invented superstructures of detailed integrate religions, cultural and societal norms, ideas and concepts, philosophical schools and cognitive scaffolding, to try and get around that notion. So why would it be wrong to cure it? What does anyone gain by suffering it? In Frederick Pohl's book Gateway, and again, skip ahead a minute if you don't want to find out the ending to another sci-fi book, uh, there's a lovely monologue between the inpatient and the robot shrink at the end. The patient is distressed by feelings of guilt and shame over the incident that happened earlier in the book. And the robot explains that these feelings, like all feelings, exist for a reason to motivate you. Sorrow, guilt, shame, all of the negative emotions drive you to change your circumstances, to become a better person, to move away from the things that are causing you pain, to uh, change your activities so that you can avoid them in the future, to show you that things have value and to move you along. In this sense, the robot psychiatrist tells the main character that, to the extent that they can contemplate what envy is in an abstract sense, that they envy these feelings very much. That might be true of sadness in our lives. 
This is, of course, why you might reject, say, the idea that you should just take a drug that makes you happy regardless of the present circumstances in your life, because you're short-circuiting the point of the negative emotions, which are supposed to motivate you to take some action to improve yourself, assuage your guilt, come to terms with your shame, face your fear, whatever it may be. After all, the fear of death is an excellent motivator to get you to accomplish things with your life while you have it. Or you could just short-circuit the whole thing, and what's wrong with that? You don't have any accomplishments, then? What are accomplishments in the face of infinity? If that is cheating when it comes to day-to-day emotions, what about the big existential ones that don't have such simple answers? Perhaps you could even argue that, much like being depressed is increasingly seen as a mental illness, not finding sufficient meaning or purpose in your life and whatever narrative of it you can construct, such that you wander off into this arcane philosophical territory, will be seen as another pointless sad defect, like dying of toothache, well... Modern technology increasingly allows at least the fortunate to be able to cure. I mean, before we invented this, we'd have to suffer this stuff indefinitely. Imagine how bad that would be. One perspective you see a lot on this question from humanists is that if you accept that life is absurd, blah blah blah, in many ways it doesn't make sense to seek a meaning to life or existence which occurred by chance, then you must also accept that all you have is the life that you can live. And that, in fact... All of this abstract contemplation about what it all means is simply a pointless distraction that only arises because you're insufficiently immersed in or engaged by the narrative story of your own life, the circumstances of your own life, and the agency that you do have within that story. They argue that if you're immersed in the real, in what's actually going on, all of these abstract worries about the meaning of life fall further down on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You pull the hood off them, and, like Scooby-Doo's ghosts, what's the meaning of human existence is simply revealed to be a more mundane question, like, why am I not achieving my goals in my relationships or career or whatever it may be? Certainly it's true from personal experience that generally when you're happy, much of this is far from your mind, and I think that the state most people exist in most of the time is not thinking about these things, and maybe it is best to view anything other than that as an aberration. But if that's so, aren't you just back to saying that all that matters is your subjective state of mind? And if this can be manipulated to simply artificially remove all of the barriers, why not? Or if you don't like that, what would be wrong with at least getting rid of your tendency to get lost in the weeds of these questions? I remember a religious friend of mine once, in their conviction that their surety of the afterlife and the divine plan for us all, or whatever it was, was good and resolved so many problems, once went down the route of the existential Pascal's wager with me, you know, if you had the choice between believing in the afterlife or not, and one option is clearly better, why wouldn't you believe in it? Some people would try to argue that there's a more profound satisfaction to be found in atheism, or at the very least, agnosticism. And, ironically, given what we've been talking about, the argument that you often hear from these people is that At least you know that you're genuinely correct and not under some form of illusion. But I didn't go down that route. I think that a kind of religious fundamentalism certainly closes off a lot of interesting philosophical questions and important thoughts that people might otherwise have. But my friend is not a fundamentalist. Like many religious people I know, I respect my friend's intelligence, thoughtfulness and nuanced beliefs, but I'm simply unable to share them myself. What was proposed here was a sort of pragmatic and consequentialist approach to finding meaning in a world that intrinsically lacks it. Just attach yourself to one of these predefined options that you have. 
At the time, I was able to give a simple reply. It's clearly not a choice. I cannot simply choose to believe in these things, even if I did think that they would make me happier. I would be lying to myself, and I'd know it. So what we've really been talking about in these episodes here is, in some ways, what if that was an option, though? What if you could choose to change your mind in that way? After all, a lot of people's sense of personal religious faith is often strengthened by mystical experiences that they feel that they have had. This is the case for the friend that I'm talking about. Maybe my friend just erred in trying persuasion when acid would have done a better job. And so it comes down to the contradiction between, on the one hand, feeling that there really is no overarching purpose or meaning to the universe beyond what we define for it, and that you will probably never be satisfied by any narrow definition that you come up with. And then, on the other hand, feeling that it is somehow wrong to either come up with a proper definition precisely, and then satisfy that definition in some artificial way, or alternatively, having decided that the whole thing is moot and there is no real answer, simply to remove the whole question and all of the unnecessary angst that it causes from the sphere of things you can contemplate. Maybe in the end, this all simply becomes a peon to ineffability. You can try and approach and dissect this in a logical and rational way all you want, but it's simply not going to be possible for you to do so in the framework that you're trying to use, because there are no universal answers here, and secretly we know that there aren't. It's a sort of fundamental incompleteness that you're not going to be able to resolve. You can come up with your own answers, of course, some of them wonderful and altruistic and kind, some of them terrible and destructive, some of them bizarre, some of them unsatisfying or self-contradictory on closer inspection, and some of them best left uninterrogated. All of them coping mechanisms in one way or another. But you're stuck with a question, which you may as well phrase as, what made it sit at the edge of the lonely wood and pour its music into nothingness? I don't know. Now, have you got the time? I really must be getting on with something else. Thank you for listening to this episode of Physical Attraction, which has been unusual and outside the realm of our ordinary programming. This, of course, only redoubles the imperative for you to get in touch with me if you have any interest, comments, questions, concerns, uh, thoughts on the meaning of life and short-circuiting it. I'd love to hear from you. You can get in touch with us on the website at physicspodcast.com where you'll find the contact form. You will also find the archive of all of the episodes that we've done and a link to our Twitter feed if you want to get in touch with us there. If you have enjoyed any of the episodes that we've put out, not just these ones, but anything at all, please do send them to as many other people who may be interested in listening to them as you can. We rely on that person-to-person networking to spread word of the show. And if you think what we're doing is valuable, if you think people would be interested in it, please, I would be extremely grateful if you could tell them to take a listen and discuss the show on social media and other places where people might be interested in it. Uh, Everyone who can do that really helps us to grow and expand. We will be back with some more regularly scheduled programming. Thank you for listening and indulging in one of these wild philosophical tangents. I hope people got something out of it, and if not, please do come back for the regularly scheduled programming, which we will be returning to next week. Until next time then, please do take care.